0: Chapter 12 Mr Sayers and the Gospel Standard Articles At this time a mutual friend brought to my attention that Mr Sayers of Watford's Strict Baptist cause disagreed with the Gospel Standard Articles. Mr Sayers was engaged to preach at the Beaton Chapel and so since I was the secretary and was concerned I telephoned him and inquired of this matter. Mr Sayers did not volunteer much information so I spoke to Mr D Crowther, a deacon of the cause meeting at Attleborough, wishing to ascertain what disagreement had actually taken place between Mr Sayers and the church at Attleborough. Mr D Crowther was very helpful and forwarded a letter to me sent to him from Mr Sayers wherein he sets forth his views in respect to the duty faith and duty faith article. From this letter... It is clear, Mr. Sayers opposed the gospel standard doctrinal position in respect of these matters. Here is a letter, twenty fifth of February, nineteen eighty three. Dear Mr. Crowther, I refer to your letter of the fifteenth of February, and as I promised in my letter the twenty first, I would seek to answer the points raised. May the Holy Spirit guide in what I reply, and may the honour and glory of God be paramount in this matter, if I may. I will ask each question in turn and seek to turn to scripture in support of what I write. Firstly, who is referred to as all in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4? Who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? And in 2, 3 verse 9, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. To my understanding of the tenor of these words is the same as of those found in Ezekiel Prophecy chapter 33 verse 11, where we read that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked turn from his way and live. To me, the whole chapter shows clearly the responsibilities laid upon both preacher and hearer, whether the hearer be lost or saved by God's grace. In connection with this point, and indeed each raised in your letter, the words of Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 seems relevant that the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. To me, the revealed will of God is that all men should repent and believe, and his secret will is is that only those who constitute the election of grace will do so. I am aware that the doctrine of election is clearly set forth, but we do not know who constitutes that number, that no man can number. If it is not the will of God that men should repent, how can he be just in condemning men for not doing so? That man, in and of himself, is quite unable to fulfil those conditions of salvation, I do not deny, But that is his sin, and God is not responsible for it. Did not Christ himself lament over Jerusalem, Matthew 23, verse 37, and Luke 13, verse 34, declaring that he would have gathered the Jews, but they would not? This is not to say that he could not, but that his desire as a man was towards them, and they would not be gathered because of their depraved will. Secondly, to whom is the gospel invitations and commands addressed? It is my firm belief that they are addressed to the whole of the human race without exception. That is not to say that they are effectual to every man. When I was first led into the solemn work of the ministry, that command was very clearly given to me. And he, that is Jesus, said unto them, Go ye into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, verse 15 and 16. If the servants of God can only go forth calling upon the elect to repent and believe, then they would never go, for we do not know who constitute the election of grace. Surely we see here the goodness and mercy of God in proclaiming salvation to all, revealed things whilst preserving the power of salvation unto himself, the secret things. Did not the Lord himself utter the great cry on the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, lest any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink? He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of water. There were those who heard and believed. Verse 40 and 41. And those also those that believed not. Thus, the gospel invitation divided them. You mentioned specifically my discourse on Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. It is most clear from the word of God that verse 7 is addressed to the wicked person. We are to exhort the wicked to repent. And if I may refer again to deliver our soul, turning again to Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the revealed thing of God is that, He who turns from his way to God will receive pardon and mercy, but he who turns not shall be lost. Before finishing with this point, I call a question that I heard from years ago and remain with me, that if the gospel invitations are as limited in their presentation as they are in their application, what a miserable gospel it would be. I feel that we need to keep in view the boundless love of God as set forth in the Gospel, as well as the glories of the doctrine of election, which I must firmly adhere to. The Gospel invitations reach out to all men, but are only effectual to the children of God, those that are called according to His purposes. Romans 8 verse 28. The servants of God sow the seed, but causes the seed to fall into the ground and prepares of him and bear fruit. God's common love to all mankind, that sin is loathsome and hateful to God, we cannot and dare not deny. And this must ever be set before the sons of men by God's servants. You quote those words that God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7, verse 11. But here we see the goodness and mercy of God and his love to the world made manifest in that he does not cut man off as he deserves their life is yet lengthened that they might hear and believe the gospel that they will not come to him that they might have life and not add sin to sin if we turn again to matthew 23 and luke 13 we read of solemn judgments pronounced by the lord jesus over the pharisees and those that trusted in their own righteousness but we also read of Christ's lamentations over Jerusalem. Sure, this is the language of love and not hatred. It is as if Jesus pleads with Jerusalem, with those that hate his name, to return. Here again, we must be careful, for we are speaking of the revelations belonging to man and the secret things belonging to God. Also, when considering this point, I cannot see how else these beautiful verses of John 3, 14-18, can be interpreted. It is clear, at least to me, that God, out of his love for mankind, sent his son Jesus to die. Again, the revealed will of God, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, etc., and that the world through him, not will, be saved, and he that believeth is not condemned. And the will of God, that only people will ever do is made clear in John 6, verse 37 to 40. But even there, the doctrine of election is tempered with mercy by a promise that him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. I feel that in the preceding three points we are dealing with the extent of the gospel and the extent of gospel ministry. I believe that it is addressed to all mankind. It is to be proclaimed to all mankind, and that the outcome of the proclamation is left with God, knowing that it will be effectual to his own dear people. In the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thy hand, for thou knowest not whether shall prosper either this or that, or whether both shall be alike good. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 6 So shall my word be that goeth out of my mouth, It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Isaiah 55 verse 11. Fourth, baptism. That there is no saving grace in the ordinance, I most heartily endorse. And if I may say, so believe that whosoever, whenever I have been led to speak on the ordinances, have always stated so. It is an ordinance that has the blessing of the Trinity resting upon it. Matthew 3, verse 16 to 17, Mark 1, verse 10 to 11, Luke 3, verse 22, and is essential to obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus has also joined it with salvation, and I dare not separate the two. However, this is not the point raised by you. As regards the qualifications, for want of a better word, of the candidate coming to be baptised. There are but two requisites. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think of the words usually spoken in the water upon the profession of your repentance, etc. We are not to sit in judgment upon any who come before us. The matter of possession rests between their soul and God. We can only act as the apostles did on a profession. This is all that Philip acted upon when he baptised the eunuch. Is this not one of the reasons why we are left instructions in the word of God as to how to deal with those who after their profession turn back and walk no more with him? My thoughts go to Simon Magus. Remember the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not in order ye be not judged. Matthew 7 verse 1 Having said that, we cannot lightly receive others into church fellowship. The walk must be consistent with the profession, and may, but this is, and of itself is not, proof, really. I do not feel that the church dares sit in judgment as to the reality of the work of grace. We may be sadly mistaken. If this ordinance was attended to in our churches, as it ought to be, that is, in the very beginnings of believers' experience, and the Holy Scriptures show this to be the case, see the book of Acts, there will not have been the opportunity to examine the candidate's reality and depth of experience. This should be the first step after believing. Having entered the Church of Christ, the young Christian then grows. I feel that as a church we expect too much from fresh converts, and this is very often a stumbling block to them. By probing into the reality of the work of grace, the secret things of God, we prevent them from giving an evidence of that reality. Finally, you ask what I meant by the expression, tomorrow it may be too late. In relation to baptism, frankly, I do not see the inferences that you say are there. We know not what a day or an hour may bring forth, and hence there is an urgency in the Gospel and its commands, including that before us. I feel that very often when baptism is set before the congregation, as a needful right, which is to satisfy the obedience called by the gospel, that Satan immediately raises all possible objections in an attempt to prevent the believer from following the Lord. And especially because of the public nature of this ordinance, nowhere in the word of God we find any license given to delay in following this step. Indeed, we profess to be Baptist but seem intent on raising objections, or rather excuses as to why believers should not be baptised. I realise that I have written perhaps bluntly here, but it is a great exercise to me that there are those who willingly and knowingly refuse to honour the Lord in this way. It may be called threats and pressures from the pulpit, but God has commanded that whosoever believeth and is baptised shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Again, I repeat, that here that there is no salvation in being baptised. And here we bow to the sovereignty of God, but he has still plainly commanded it, and his people are told to do so. I trust I have answered your questions, and pray you will receive this letter in the spirit in which it has been written, seeking to honour the Lord God. Pray, please forgive my writing in this length, wishing the blessing of God upon you and upon the church and congregation at Attleborough, Yours, with Christian regards, yours sincerely, Howard Sayers. It was evident to me, from reading Howard Sayers' letters, that he did not agree with the Gospel Standard Articles of Religion. And I had spoken to Mrs Sayers on the telephone and asked him whether he subscribed to the Gospel Standard Articles when joining the Watford Church. He explained that he had never been asked to do so. This surprised me since he was engaged to preach at gospel-standard causes, and the church at Watford was a gospel-standard church. What was I to do? If our church cannot put right matters respecting particular redemption, holy tables and disorderly members, how could this matter be taken in hand? I knew this matter would have to be resolved in the fear of God and that the church must be in a position to judge this issue, but they were not. The matters of duty faith and duty repentance were involved, both of which I had already met with at Eaton Bray Church, where some had actually opposed my doctrinal stand over this issue. At this church I preached from the text Acts 17 and defended Article 26 of the Gospel Standard Articles. I was judged as being wrong, both in substance and my method, of preaching, and at a latter time gently reproved by Mr. Godley, who was a minister, now in membership of the eaton Church. The eaton Church was a Gospel Standardistic Church. I had also written to the Gospel Standard Committee over this issue and received a satisfactory reply. I had cause to look into this matter before the Church of Bairton joined the Gospel Standard denomination. Both of these letters may be read in the supplement under the heading Letter to the Gospel Standard Committee. The circumstances related to my concern over this issue are also found in the same supplement under the heading Letter to Mr Peter Howe, former minister of Ivinghoe Particular Baptist Church, page 33 and 40. In this supplement I have shown one of our members was not clear over the issue and knew the church were in no better position how to deal with this matter in a correct way. The matter would have to be brought to the church, but how and when? Look at what we were already in. The matter was brought forward at a church meeting in February 1984. See that later.